Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of First Peter. Last week, actually two weeks ago, we began studying the book of First Peter. And this morning, we're going to look at the first chapter again. I'd like you to join me as I read aloud, if you would read silently from whatever version of the Bible you're carrying today. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, and we're going to begin with verse 3 of chapter 1 of the book of 1 Peter. Verse 3 of chapter 1 reads this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, and undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven." things into which angels long to look. You're probably aware of the fact that Jesus spoke about false Christs. He spoke about false prophets. The New Testament writers talk about false teachers. They talk about people who pretend to be believers and are not. Jesus himself even says in Matthew chapter 13 in the parable of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of heaven on earth, the visible church, when a gathering like this occurs anywhere in the world that calls itself a church, there will be people within that group who seem to be believers and are not. There's a lot of falsehood represented in the visible church of Jesus Christ. False faith, you might say. Those words really don't go together. There's only one kind of faith, and that's real faith. And in order for us to know the difference, we need to know what the Word of God says regarding what constitutes real faith. And this passage which we're considering today gives us insight. If time permits, we'll look at three different things which this text teaches regarding real faith. The first of which is real faith rejoices. We may not get past that one. It's so rich. But if we do, we'll go to the second one, which says, real faith does not require physical evidence. The third one indicates that real faith 
gives its holders salvation. So let's go back to the first emphasis, which is this. Real faith rejoices. Look again at our text. Verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. The phrase, you greatly rejoice, is a present tense statement, which means these to whom these words were written, and remember who they were. They were aliens who were scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who were chosen by God. They were aliens who were under quite a bit of pressure. And the Scripture says, you continually, greatly rejoice. Now let me stop just a moment and talk a moment about the word which is translated greatly rejoice. This is not some sort of mealy-mouthed rejoicing. It is a rejoicing which is jubilant. Art and Gingrich, who for many decades have been considered the greatest lexicographers of the Greek language, especially as it relates to the New Testament, indicate that what this means is people who greatly rejoice shout with joy. And this is their habit. This is what they do. They all the while are greatly rejoicing. Allow me to take a stab at illustrating this from the world of beauty contests. It's been a long time since I've watched Miss America. I don't even know if the pageant still is aired on TV. It's been so long since I've seen it. But as I recall, out of the candidates, 50, one from every state, the field is narrowed down to five. And those five women come out, and whoever's emceeing it is handed an envelope and begins to tell from fourth runner-up all the way down to first runner-up. And when the first runner-up is revealed, we know who Miss America is, right? And when the time comes to get to the first runner-up and that bridesmaid's name is mentioned, then what do we see Miss America do? Does she just sit there very solemnly, calmly, make no kind of response? No, not at all. To the contrary, what does she do? She just gets jubilant, right? She weeps. She kind of, she's just so excited. It's an exciting moment. Now let's fast forward for the rest of us who are not big pageant fans to sports, okay? And when I was thinking about this, I was trying to think of an example of this. And in my memory bank, a picture is reserved there of Phil Mickelson. Phil Mickelson winning his first major PGA Championship. I believe it was actually the PGA, but I have a distinct impression he was dressed in black, and when he sunk the winning putt on the 18th hole, he leaps up. But interestingly, he only gets about that high off the ground. But he was jubilant. He was not casual in his championship feat. That's the idea. We are called upon, actually when we are faced with trouble, that we are to leap, the Scripture says, for joy. And maybe you're like me. You can't leap very high. But we're to have that kind of exuberance associated with our lives in faith. And if we understand our faith, then we will be jubilant in our expression of our faith. Even in times of trouble. Peter is not the only writer who speaks about greatly rejoicing. 
The Apostle Paul says in the book of Philippians chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Not only does he modify our rejoicing by the proverb, I mean the adverb, always, but also he uses present tense commands. Keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing. There's never a moment, according to Paul's perspective, which is God's perspective, that we are not to rejoice. And then, if you go to the book of Hebrews, the 13th chapter and the 15th verse, we don't know who the human author of Hebrews is, but that author, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, like Peter and Paul, talks about how we are to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, rejoicing in the Lord, always, and especially in times of trial. James, another biblical writer, in the New Testament, says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. Here's the first thing that I'd like to mention about trials. I'm going to mention seven things which come from this passage of Scripture regarding trials. Here's the first thing. Trials are normal. The Scripture says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, All those who desire godly, Lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And then if you'll turn the page and go to chapter 4 of 1 Peter and look at verse 12. Beloved. That's an important word as Paul introduces this thought because there's a tendency for us to think when we're undergoing trial that we're no longer under the umbrella of God's love. If God loves me, why would God allow me to have trouble. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Many times, people who are uninformed about what the Bible teaches regarding trials and suffering for the believer, many times believers wonder, Lord, why is this happening to me? What is going on? And it helps us to understand that this is part of God's plan for our lives. It is normal to have trying experiences in our lives. And we are to rejoice in our trials. And you might say, how in the world, Mike, could you justify saying that we can rejoice in our trials? How does this apply to me, Mike? How can I be this kind of follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? It is an expression of faith. We'll talk about how we develop our faith a little bit later today. But let me just answer the question in a very simple way. We can rejoice in our trials because we are in Christ. Remember what Jesus said when he was teaching in the book of John in the Upper Room Discourse, John 15:11. He says, I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, think about the context of that statement in Jesus' life. It would be easy to understand if he had made this statement as he was taking a leisurely ride in a boat along with his apostles on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. That would be easy to understand, this whole idea of his joy being in us and everything be hunky-dory in our lives. Full 
of joy. But when Jesus says this, what had just happened? Jesus had been in the upper room. He had washed His disciples' feet. And prior to His instituting what we call the Lord's Supper, as He and His apostles observed Passover, He had given an order to Judas, and He told Judas, Go and do what you have to do and do it quickly. And what was He referring to? Go and betray Me. So here is one of Jesus' friends, and he is going to betray Jesus. Would that leave a knot in your stomach if your best friend has betrayed you? Some of you have had that happen in your lives before. But Jesus says, I have said these things to you that my joy may be in you. And he's talking about... His being the true vine, our being branches, our abiding in Him, and His life, including His joy, being accessible to us because of that dependent relationship of faith in Him, just like a branch in a vine. What was about to happen to Jesus? He had been preparing His apostles for years for what was about to happen. He was about to be arrested by those that Judas would lead to him in the garden of Gethsemane. So he knew what lay ahead. His demise physically. His being crushed by the weight of our sin as God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. This is when Jesus makes this statement about his joy being in us and our joy being made full. So do you see... It's when we understand our relationship to Christ, not just intellectually, but we live in that abiding relationship with Him. And the second thing might be a subheading under what I've just said. But even if I hadn't said what I just said, this would be enough to help us to understand how we can rejoice in our trials, which are normal. Proper thinking makes it possible to rejoice in one's trials. Notice what has just preceded these words that we just looked at in the sixth verse. We looked at them last week. Remember that beginning with verse 3, going all the way through verse 12, Paul, Peter rather, gives what we would call a eulogy. It's a song of great praise. It could be called a doxology, praising Father. Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful thing. And look at some of the things that are stated here in verse 3. Let's begin with verse 3 again. The Scripture says in verse 3, that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy... Let's stop right there. The Bible says later in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, you were a people who were not a people... Now you are a people. You are a people who had no mercy. What's the opposite of mercy? Justice and judgment. We were under judgment. You had no mercy. You were under the judgment of God. Then all of a sudden, God did something for you which you could not do for yourself. He caused you to be born again based upon His great mercy. Begin to think these things. These things have a way of elevating not just our mood, but changing our thinking so that we can look beyond the moment and look into the future, particularly into eternity. He goes on to say in this passage of Scripture 
that we have been born again to a living hope. Remember the world into which Peter was born, into which these chosen ones had been born, to whom this was first written. Their world was a world which was void of hope. Last week we saw how one of the gravestones which has been excavated contemporary to the life of Christ and Peter and these to whom this was first written had this simple epitaph on it, no hope, ooh, elpis, no hope. That was the prevailing view of the day. And all of a sudden, these people who had been under the spell of hopelessness, they were set free by a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance. We all want an inheritance, right? Well, we've got one if we're in Christ. And these are the things which the Scripture says about this inheritance. Notice, imperishable. It cannot die. It is undefiled. It cannot be stained by anything evil, and then it will not fade away. It will not become something that grows ugly as time passes. And it's reserved in heaven for us. And the word translated reserved, we saw, means it cannot be canceled, this reservation, which is ours in heaven. Now, a dead heir doesn't get the inheritance, right? So look what verse 4 goes on to say who are protected by the power of God. How? Through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are protected by none other than God the Father and God the Son. We find ourselves as followers of Christ in His protective custody as it were. We are in the hand of God and no one can take us away. Now, when I begin to think about those things, They are occasions, one of these, there are several that we've looked at, any one of them would be an occasion for rejoicing greatly, right? Think about it. Think of these things. And when we begin to think the way God thinks, then it has the capacity to help us rise above and rejoice, even and especially when we are being tried in this life. The Scripture says in the last part of verse 5 that this salvation is to be revealed in the last time. And actually that phrase, that's a good translation, it's talking about the end times, when the Lord comes again. But another interpretation that was prevalent in this time in history would have yielded this possible interpretation. When the worst comes to the worst, when you have reached the limit of your endurance, when there's a time of crisis, let me put it another way, when you are in a trial in your life. So trials are normal. Here's the second thing, and I don't need to tell anybody this. This will not take much explanation at all. Trials are stressful. There's probably maybe ten people in the room, by conservative estimate, who are not undergoing some kind of trial in your life. If you follow Christ, you're serious about it, you're going to have some sort of trial going on in your life. Look again at verse 6 of our passage. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed 
by various trials. Do you know what the word distressed means? It's used in John 16, 6, and then also again in Romans 9, 2, and various other places in the New Testament. One time it's even used by Jesus himself to describe what he was experiencing in the solitude and the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweat what appeared to be great drops of blood. The word means grieved. You were grieved. And do not trials grieve us? They grieve us. Remember what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he's talking about the second coming of Christ. And he talks about those whom we love who are in Christ who have died before the second coming of Christ. And in that passage, he makes this statement. We do not grieve like the rest of mankind. Now think about that for a moment. We do grieve when our loved ones leave, do we not? It's grievous to lose a loved one. Even if a loved one's in Christ, we miss them. We grieve the loss which we experience. But we do not grieve like the rest of mankind. There is mixed in to that grief which is associated with the loss of a loved one. A parent or a spouse or a child or a brother or a sister or just a dear friend in Christ. It's grievous when we lose a sibling, whether it's on the natural level or the spiritual level. And many times it's a combination of the two because of the shared faith which we have with our siblings. But the thing we must always remember when we consider this, is that there is joy in the anticipation of reunion. Isn't that true? For those who have preceded us in death. So trials are stressful. We have inward pain in our souls from outward circumstances. But these things, this grief and this joy can run on parallel tracks and the joy we have by virtue of our being in Christ and His being in us and He gives us the capacity to think His thoughts after Him, we have the mind of Christ, then the result is that we can see joy overtaking the stress of the circumstance. So trials are normal and trials are stressful and trials vary. Isn't that what the text says in verse 6? In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Now, I love the words in the New Testament and the Old Testament for that matter. And this is one of the more picturesque words. It was a word which was used to describe the coat or the skin of a leopard. Isn't it beautiful to look at the skin of a leopard? It's varied in its color, isn't it? It's also used to describe marble that had various kinds of veining in it. And some of you have such marble on the floors in your house. It's beautiful, especially when it's buffed and cleaned. It's beautiful to see the various veins that are part of the marble. It was used to describe that. It was also used to describe the beautiful multicolored embroidering on a robe in the New Testament era. So we have this kind of varied trials. There are almost as many types of trials as there are people. And I mentioned earlier, most of us are undergoing some sort of trial. And in some cases, you have multiple 
trials going on simultaneously. But what we need to understand is God is aware of those trials. The sources of those trials often include people. Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you on account of me. Rejoice, amazing, and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they treated the prophets who were before you. Please understand that when you make a stand for Christ, and I'm not talking about being obnoxious, we follow Jesus. Was Jesus obnoxious? Jesus was not. But Jesus is full of truth. And Jesus spoke the truth. He lived the truth. And Jesus even says in John chapter 3 that darkness hates light. And we are the light of the world. And when we walk as Christ walked, we follow in the pathway of Jesus, we're going to offend some people. And the darkness hates the light and will react to the light. We must not be afraid or ashamed of Jesus. Afraid to be a follower of Christ or ashamed of being identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes with his Father's angels. So, please, keep following Jesus. But understand, in the following of Jesus... We're going to get some pushback from people. They're going to say some very hurtful things to us. They may even do more than say ugly things about us. They may actually harm us physically as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But understand, this is normal. We know it's stressful. This is some of the variation that we experience. We experience affliction at the hands of other people. Then there are circumstances. Some of you have been the victim of circumstances. Your house has been broken into. And your house has been ransacked. And some valuable things, maybe not so much monetarily, but sentimentally, things have been taken. What did you have to do with that? You had your house locked up. You had your valuables put away in what you thought was a fail-safe situation. Fool, it was unable to be fooled with by people. And then it happened. Or some of you have been in auto accidents where you were abiding by the law. You had the light. You went through the intersection. Boom! All of a sudden you were hit. It may have caused you bodily harm. It caused you at least great inconvenience to have to replace the car if it were totaled or leave it in the shop for weeks and weeks until it's finished. Those circumstances many times are trials in our lives. What about health? Some of you have severe health problems. And these health problems are trials too. We have all kinds of trials. They vary. But here's an important point that Peter makes here. Trials are necessary. Look again at the text in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Now, follow this carefully. The two words translated, if necessary, you'll have to take my word for this. I'm not going to go into an elaborate explanation of this as far as the grammar of the language is concerned. 
but it is the kind of if statement which would be better translated, instead of using our word if, it would be the word since. S-I-N-C-E. Since it is necessary is really what the Spirit of God is saying here. And this is what Peter is writing. So let us read this sentence with that in mind. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, since it is necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So, what does it mean that trials are necessary? Well, let's read in verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's to prove our faith. It's to see if our faith is genuine. Let me describe, to the best of my ability, what a goldsmith would do when some ore, which was thought to contain gold, was brought to his assayer's bench, and he began to separate that which was impure from that which was real gold. And the way this would happen, perhaps you're aware of this, the ore would be placed into a cauldron or a pot. There would be a fire that would be lit under it, and the assayer, the goldsmith, would increase the heat and increase the heat. And what would happen is that the dross, we would call it slag, would separate from the real deal, the gold, and would begin to rise to the top. And then very carefully, the goldsmith would rake off that which was not gold. Now, why would he be very careful? Because gold was precious then just like it is now. And he would not want to lose any of it because he was going to get a percentage of the gold as compensation for his expertise and the work which he did. So carefully, 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 as he would increase the heat, then he would carefully, and it would reach a point when he would quit increasing the heat. And so the story goes, goldsmiths would know that their task was finished when they could look into the kettle and see their own reflection in the liquid gold. Now, there's an application here for us. The Lord knows it's necessary for you, if you're a follower of Jesus and for me, for purification to occur in our lives so that we can become more like Christ. Our faith must be proven, and it's proven by the trials. God uses the trials of our lives to break us to get rid of those aspects of our lives which are exhibitions of our own selfishness, particularly our pride. God opposes the proud, the Bible says. He does not take kindly to pride, and He breaks us, and He wants to see the image of Christ in our lives. It's His goal that we become like Jesus who learned obedience through what He suffered. And... We know that God is intent upon conforming us to the image of His Son, Jesus. To prove our faith, we undergo, necessarily, we undergo trials in our lives. Another aspect of this proving our faith is not just to prove the genuineness of it, but to prove to others who watch us in the crucible of trial 
to watch us and see how we respond. It's a witness to people. Paul says about God and about himself when he and his team were undergoing intense trials, so intense that he said, even in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. And this is what he said to those to whom he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6. He said, if we are distressed, now listen carefully, if we are distressed, it's for your comfort and your salvation. So this in and of itself would be enough to explain to us why we suffer. If only we had this, it's for one another. It's so that when you go through a trial, which, remember, trials are normal. When you go through a trial, then you can come to me and I perhaps have gone through a trial. Maybe not identical, but nevertheless a trial and I can encourage you. You can watch people go through trials and we see people going through trials. It's for others, for their comfort if they're believers and for their salvation If they're not believers, God will use it, believe me, in the lives of other people to glorify Himself by winning them to Christ. It's also to to strengthen us for future trials. Time will not permit. But let me just simply say, there was something which happened to me when I was 26 years old, my first major trial in my life, and I thought I was going to die inside during that time. I actually had the image during that time of taking my life, the only time it ever happened, and I immediately recognized Satan was behind it, behind that idea of my taking my life. I actually got ill. I had to have surgery because of the improper approach I took to dealing with the stress in my life. But I learned a lot through that. I was a different person. I would dare say I was much more humble after that experience. About eight years later, when I was 34, I entered into another period of trial. It was a little more lengthy period. Not as acute, but lengthy. And it lasted. I I was wondering if it was ever going to end. It was tough. It was a tough period of my life. When God finally delivered me from that trial, ten years later, I said, man, Lord, I have learned my lesson. You never have to put me through a trial again. I've got it, Lord. I'm going to walk the straight and narrow. Well, then go about 15 years later. Maybe not quite that long. Probably, yeah, it probably was about 15 years. I hit another trial, and it put the other two in the shade in terms of its severity. And as I underwent that trial, you know, it was because God had helped me to understand when I was in my 20s, and then He had reinforced that and increased my understanding when I was going through that trial through my 30s and early 40s, and now here I am in my 50s, and I'm going through a trial again. And God got me through that one. It lasted quite a while. And I thought, whoa, Lord, I thought I had it down the first time, And the second time, I know for sure I've got it down now. And then, guess what? In my 60s, another trial. And it was the worst yet in my life. But you know what God has used those trials in my life to do? To strengthen me. Not that I'm impervious to the pain. The pain is true in every trial which we face. But I have able been taught by the Spirit of God to deal 
properly with the trials because we can look forward to the future. It's a good future. Trials mature us. I referred to James 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And endurance will have its perfect result so that you will be perfect. And the word really means mature. Perfect, lacking in nothing. You nor I will never be mature apart from trials in our lives. This is the inevitability of our lives. Trials are necessary. Here's one that we don't have to waste much time on. Trials are temporary. Isn't that what we're taught in verse 6? In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials for a little while. Now, as I mentioned, one of this periods of trial in my life lasted 10 years. I didn't think that was a little while. It was not a little while. But in the bigger scheme of things, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He talks about our momentary affliction. Compared to what? To eternity. We are so earthly minded, we don't have a very good view of the long term. And we need to get God's viewpoint on this thing. It's very important. Now, a quick note about the devil. The devil likes to make life miserable for you and me. But he's not a persevering devil. If we are patient and we trust the Lord and we keep greatly rejoicing, he hates it. I can picture Satan when you or I are undergoing a trial. And all of a sudden we begin to greatly rejoice in the trial. And all of a sudden I can see the devil just putting his hands over his ears and just having a fit and then leaving. Look. What we need to understand is we can outwit the devil when it comes to the pressure he puts on us by outweighting him because he gives up and we have Christ in us enabling us not to give up. Here's the sixth thing that this passage teaches us about trials. Trials are normal. We know that. Trials are stressful. They vary. They're necessary. And trials are temporary, but now trials pave the road to reward in our lives. This is the good part, really. Let's look again at verse 7. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know the word that is used to describe the last book. What is it? Revelation, same word here, the apocalypsis, the apocalypse, the time when Christ is revealed in His full glory, when He comes again. At that moment, we know there'll be a time when we who know Christ will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In James chapter 1, verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because that man will receive the crown of life. Or woman, look, we stand up under trials, what awaits us? A crown of life. It's a picture of eternal life. Hang in there, bro. Jesus is coming. 
Maranatha, even so come, Lord Jesus. Some of you say, oh, I wish He were coming right now. He'd deliver me out of my trial. Well, just wait, because He's doing something in you so He can do something through you, so you can be used in the lives of other people. You are still here in order to glorify God. And one of the ways in which we glorify God is that we respond to trials according to what we are learning here today. When He does come back, perhaps... You will ask him. I doubt if too many will be asking this question. But it's conceivable. Jesus can handle it if we ask it respectfully. Where were you, Lord? Where were you all those years? Well, this is what the Lord would say. He would say to me, Mike, do you remember how often you quoted Philippians 4.4 to yourself and Less to your church. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And what does the next line say, Mike? The Lord is near. Think about Paul at that moment. When he wrote that, where was Paul? He was in prison. He was blind. He was an aging man. He was, for all he knew, on death row. And he said, the Lord is near. The Lord was with him. And the Lord is... With us. And Mike, as the Lord would say to me, I was with you. You may not have felt my presence. You may not have sensed my presence, but that's beside the point, Mike. I was near. I was with you. And then many of us will hear that wonderful saying, Well done, good, and faithful. That's a key word. Faithful servant. Well done, And notice what is going to happen. It will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look, some would say this refers to God, but I don't think so. This refers to us who greatly rejoice in our trials. This refers to us. Are you in a trial? How do you overcome the dreadfulness, the distress of your trial? You overcome it. By praising God, rejoicing greatly, and you say, okay, Mike, enough of that. Look, if you haven't tried it, don't knock it. And it's not simply something for you and me to try. It's what is to be characteristic of us. And when we think properly about who God is and who we are in Christ, we cannot help but rise above. I mean, we are going to have our moments of pain. And remember, this idea of grief and the idea of joy run on parallel tracks. That's what the text teaches us. That's what we see in Scripture. Now, here's the last thing, and now I'm going to wrap up with some summary statements about real faith rejoicing, especially in trial. Trials are the places of greatest victory in the Christian life. Remember what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 13? He says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. The word translated temptation in that verse and the word tempted are the same word or from the same word family as the word trials that Peter uses. Trials, temptation, same word. So, 
we undergo trials. And what does the Bible say? God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted or tried beyond what you can bear. You may say, I'm at the end of my rope. I can't do it anymore. By God's grace, you'll be able to do it. As you trust in Christ, you can't do it on your own, nor can I, nor can anyone. We have to learn, and that's what our trials are about, to separate us from self-dependence and give us a heart of absolute dependence in faith upon the Lord, realizing we've been helpless all along. We just didn't know it until we are faced with this ominous trial and dealing with it in our lives. And He will provide a way out. And here's what I love. Listen. This word, which is translated various, modifying the word trials, is used once more by Peter in the fourth chapter. Would you look at the fourth chapter, First Peter, and look at verse 10. The Scripture says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The word translated manifold is the same word that is used by Peter over in verse 6 of chapter 1, translated various. It's the identical word in the original language. So for every hue, every color, every variety of trial, guess what God has? He has an answer to it in the grace that He will give you. He will give you and me the grace we need to deal with whatever trial we face in our lives. So this is the good news. Victory comes, and it's most sweet, in the face of trial. And God gets the glory, of course, in that situation. Now, let me give you five ideas, simple ideas, that you can take with you today when it has to do with dealing with trials. The first is a statement. I am here by God's appointment. You are in your trial because God permitted it. It did not come at the will of the devil. The devil has to gain permission to sift you like wheat. We know that from the experience of Peter and the apostles in Luke chapter 22. I am in this trial by his appointment. Perhaps you know when God addresses Judah in exile in Babylon... He says, it was I who sent you into exile from Jerusalem to Judah. And then he explains how they're able to overcome. I am here by God's appointment. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. I am in God's keeping. I'm in His hand. And nobody can take me out of His hand. Nobody can hurt me ultimately because God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So, I'm here by God's appointment. I'm in God's keeping. Thirdly, I'm in His school to be trained by my trial. I'm being trained in this situation. He will make your trial a blessing as you respond properly to that trial. And He will teach you what God has for you to learn. 
It's been said that when we are in the melting pot, the crucible of purification, that God keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. And the moment that he has finished refining you, he's going to turn the heat down when you are finished. Now, we know ultimately that's when this life is over. But even in this life, God doesn't keep us normally in that place indefinitely. It's for a little while. That's what the Scripture says. But this is important. What is God teaching me? That's the thing we must always ask. We are under His training. Here's the fourth thing. I've already said it in a way, but I'm going to say it again. In God's time, He will deliver me. Psalm 34:19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them. How many? All. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but God delivers him out of them all. And then here's the last thing. God makes me more fruitful because of my trials. When Joseph, who was very acquainted with trials, he's such an example of how to deal with trial. He named his second son Ephraim. And the name Ephraim means this. It means God made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Does that mean God can't make you fruitful in times that are calm and easy? No. But the reality is greater fruitfulness comes out of people like you and me who are undergoing trial. Greater fruitfulness comes when we respond properly. God uses... I don't understand it totally, but I have some sense as to why. Because people are watching you and me. We're not on display by our own choice. We'd rather not be in the trial in the cauldron, right? But God uses us. Well, there are two more points to the sermon, but I guess they'll have to wait. I hope, I hope you take what you've heard today and apply it to your life. It's very practical. It's very real, isn't it? We are men and women who are living in a period of being tried. And there's a way to deal with it that is not simply to grin and bear it, but to go forward and be used by God in a greater way as a result of it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the day. It's your day. You've made it. And we want to choose to rejoice in it. We praise you for who you are, Lord. You are great and greatly to be praised. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. We recognize Your sovereignty and we recognize Your grace and Your love for us. It's immense. Both are. We thank You for this. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.